The following episode contains graphic descriptions of rape, physical abuse, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. I thought he had the coldest eyes I've ever seen. His face was blank, but his eyeballs were intent. I've seen that same look on guys getting ready to shoot a rabbit or a bird. He wore a gray jogging suit and running shoes. He came straight for me. Unquote. Today, I'll be talking about the blaze of panic and carnage inflicted upon the citizens of Spokane, Washington, by a man known as the South Hill Rapist. Quote, Spokane was already becoming famous as a jogging city since the advent of the massive Bloomsday race in 1977, unquote, which was born as the result of the 1970s U.S. jogging craze, and in the words of legendary San Diego newsman Ron Burgundy, apparently you just run for an extended period of time. It's supposed to be wild. <laughs> Spokane, the second largest city in Washington, is located east, near the Idaho border. Before the city, the land served as the ancestral home and lifeline of the Spokane tribe of Indians, until the white people showed up and took it as their own. Bisected by the Spokane River, it is the home of Gonzaga University, and at one time gained national attention when it hosted Expo 74, the first environmentally-themed World's Fair, the site of which is now the city's gorgeous riverfront park. South Hill, soon to be under siege, is a neighborhood of Spokane described as lovely, high-class, and chic, and consists of five smaller neighborhoods. Heading west to east, they are High Drive, Cannon Hill, Cliff Park to the north, Manitou, the center point, and Rockwood Hutton. The first South Hill rape took place at a quarter to midnight on April 25, 1978, when a 19-year-old was walking home from a Vips restaurant after a fight with her spouse. Vips, or VIPs if you're not local, was a Denny's-like restaurant chain that operated in five western states from 1968 to 1989. The young woman headed north on foot through Riverfront Park, turning west on Indiana Avenue. And as she walked through a space unlit by street lamps, a man leaped out, quote, like a jack-in-the-box from behind a parked car, grabbing her by the arms. She couldn't make out the man entirely, but she did see longish, brownish hair, blocky shoulders under a heavy denim jacket and jeans, and that he towered over her petite stature of five foot five by at least five inches. The woman screamed, and the man clamped his hand over her mouth, then said he'd remove it if she promised not to scream. She agreed, and he removed his hand. She began screaming again, and this time the man rammed the fingers of his left hand down her throat and shoved her toward a dark plot of grass, where he yanked her jeans down and orally raped her, before turning her over and raping her vaginally with his barely erect penis. His hand remained down her throat the entire time, the other raising to a fist as a warning, should the woman try to make a noise. Before running off, 
The man said he would return to kill her if she told the police. Half naked, she ran to and knocked at the nearest house. There was no answer there or at the house next door. The third she tried opened to her, and she was allowed to call the police. When they arrived, the woman grabbed for the policeman nearest to her, feeling in that moment, quote, that if someone didn't comfort her, she would scream and never stop, unquote. On November 26, 1978, seven months from the rape in April, a woman's breasts were grabbed by a man as she walked along West Broadway. The man then fled in a silver Pontiac Grand Prix, but witnesses caught the license plate and the man's description, which matched information the woman attacked in April had provided. The detective assigned to the case put it on the back burner when he caught two big cases back to back, one of which was a murder. Unable to later locate either party involved in the groping incident, and probably not trying all that hard, he filed the cases inactive and moved on to the rest of his caseload. An unfortunate turn, as the second woman's assailant had been the same as the first, the South Hill Rapist. A quarter past 10 p.m. on April 30, 1979, a woman was attacked as she jogged across a quiet South Hill intersection. She broke loose as the man tried to drag her to the ground, and she was able to run to safety. Her report came with the same descriptions as the earlier attacks. Mid-twenties to thirty, medium-length hair, 180 pounds, and like the attack a year earlier, he had attempted to shove his fingers down the woman's throat. On June 17th, two employees of the Tiger's Den, Misty and Louise, were working alone at this, one of the many massage parlors frequented by the South Hill Rapist. All of the women that worked there were uneasy because the parlor had been receiving north of 70 obscene phone calls per day, and two months earlier, a worker at another location had been assaulted and tied up after closing. Was that 70 calls a day? Yep. Just... Did they say what it was, like noises or just uh, somebody think, saying stuff? Yeah, I think a lot. some of it was, yeah, dirty talk, and some of it was just breathing, and then some of it was silence. Dealing in legal massages and illegal sex work, the parlors had no outlet to contact police and were completely on their own. The man, described as having a, quote, rich kid look, showed up around noon that day. He was a new face to them, and they were concerned he may be the obscene caller. Louise took the man's $25 for some time in a hot tub, lying that she didn't do massages, meaning sex work. His response? A muttered, anything. She led him to a massage room, where he pulled a pocket knife and said he wouldn't hurt her as long as she followed his instructions. He tied her hands behind her back and gagged her with a towel. Up front, Misty had just begun wondering what was taking Louise so long when the man popped into the hallway and said something had happened to her. When Misty passed by the man, he clapped a hand over her mouth and said he was there to rob them. Misty told him there was a ton of cash up by the front, and he responded that he was not, in fact, there for money. The man dragged Misty into another room by her wrists and slammed her to the floor when she refused to perform oral sex on him. He stood over her, screaming that she was a whore, while he yanked on his penis that mostly always failed to get erect. He attempted and failed to rape the woman vaginally, and after he finally did ejaculate, he fell to his knees and began apologizing with a crying thickness in his throat. Ugh. Sick. He cleaned Misty off, said he hadn't meant to scare her, then threatened to kill her if she left the room before he had been gone for five minutes. She waited, then called out to Louise, receiving silence in return. She stood up, 
unsure of what to do, when the phone rang. With her hands still tied, Misty rushed to the phone, pushed it off the hook with her nose, and shouted for help. The response was a male voice's cackling laughter. Misty left the phone hanging and searched the massage rooms for Louise, whom she found naked and bound, but alive. They helped each other get free, and soon discovered that the man had taken back his $25, as well as the cash and driver's licenses from each of their purses. On July 28th, a 16-year-old girl reported being raped by a stranger she met in a restaurant parking lot, just a few blocks north of the South Hill area. The man was described as, quote, about 27 years old, with long blonde hair and a mustache, unquote. On the evening of the 30th, a woman on the South Hill was grabbed by a man, but was able to break his grip and run to safety when he tried to put a hand to her throat. She described her assailant as, quote, white male, five foot ten, medium build, shoulder-length hair, unquote. August 15th, a jogger's breast was grabbed by a man who had crossed to her side of the street and then stepped from behind a bush to commit the assault. She kicked the man in the balls, doubling him over, and shoved him away running as fast as she could and making it inside her home where she called police, who told her it was good she hadn't been hurt because they had, quote, been getting a few rapes up around their way, unquote. He apologized, but informed her the police were too swamped to send out a unit and advised her to call back if she saw her attacker again. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, you, you, yeah you, throughout this, you probably won't believe what the <laughs> cops don't do, or you will believe it. But you won't like it. It's like they can dismiss a few rapes, but they're, it's probably going to pile up before anybody does anything, right? And God. just talking about it like it's thunderstorms or stray dogs or something. Just like, oh, we've had some of that going My on. My car was broken into yeah. is their response. Yeah. yeah. That's the level that they're giving it. Yeah, yeah, we can't send a squad car. It's not that big of a thing. The next night, a woman was raped about a mile away from the attack the night before. And weeks later, on September 7th, an 18-year-old was attacked on South Monroe. Two days later, on September 9, 1979, Sunshine Shelley Monahan, beloved radio DJ at KJRB, was assaulted as she walked to her car after her radio shift ended at 11 p.m. Seeing movement off in the darkened lot, Shelley called out, Hun? Hoping it was her husband, who sometimes met her after work. Quote, From out of nowhere, somebody grabbed me, and then just took his fist and proceeded to immediately just start beating the daylights out of my face. At one point, he stuck his hand down my throat, and I bit his hand hard enough to draw blood, unquote. With her nose broken and the man's arm throttling her neck, Shelley was dragged into a brushy field next to the radio station. He knocked her to the ground and attempted to penetrate her, all the while asking personal questions about her sex life and whether or not she was married. The rapist was able to obscure his face from Shelley throughout the ordeal, which left her with a battered body and an injured psyche. Before the rapist left, he asked Shelley how she planned to advance her career in radio. I think that really speaks to to his um, kind of becoming more brazen. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the day, radio DJs, that's like a local celebrity. And a radio station is like, you know, that's a, a media building. You know, people are there. And it also sounds like he escalated with his violence. too. Yeah. Yeah. The more that he didn't get caught, the more he ramped it up. And and the longer he would stick around, when he was when he was raping somebody, right? Yeah. Well, with the massage parlor, I'm I'm actually shocked he did it there. Yeah. Where anybody could have walked in. 
And I, I mean, I think he knows too that sex workers aren't going go to go even even we're even lower on the priority scale below yeah. just regular Spokane. citizens. Yeah, we did that other Spokane episode. It wasn't until a decade later that anyone even tried to talk to sex workers. That's right. Who was that? That uh, that was the Robert Lee Yates episode. Oh yeah. After Shelley fell able and returned to work at the radio station, a phone call came in. The unknown man told Shelley he knew where she lived and that he was going to kill her. Quote, I'll bet you thought I forgot about you, didn't you, sunshine? Unquote. Did he call like her work or did he call to be on the air and say that? Yeah. Well, I don't think it was on the air, but I think he did. Oh, he did just call in. So it's probably like the pre-screening part, part, you know? Yeah. For a time after that, she slept hidden in a closet camouflaging herself in loose clothing with a butcher knife by her side. Her marriage eventually buckled under the stress and trauma of the rape, and the couple divorced. In an interview, Shelley said, quote, Night smells different than day to me. Night smells like rape. Unquote. Oh, so sad. Yeah, all the things you would connect to it. Well, I don't think it back then people really connected the psychological damage that rape can cause. It is basically like murder you're murdering right who someone was yeah it was kind of like a, a sexual interaction that you just didn't want to be a part of yeah and it's and, like no it's actually way more than that and imagine being back then and not knowing who to get help from yeah or oh like yeah that. the resources in the late 70s yeah i don't think you had a lot of uh numbers that you could call on tuesday september 11th two days following the rape of shelly monahan the South Hill rapist showed up to a work meeting with scratches on his neck, hand, and jaw. He explained the injuries away with a story about a German shepherd that attacked him in Manitou Park as he jogged. On Saturday, October 6th, a woman had just finished loading her Cadillac for an early AM run to the airport. Closing the door after sitting inside, she noticed a man standing next to her driver's side window as she prepared to start the engine. The woman was quick to lock the doors and press the horn to call attention to her situation, but the horn didn't work. Oh, no. The man began masturbating, oh. pressing his face to the window. Oh! She screamed for help and started to reverse in an attempt to run the man down and escape, but he was already trotting away casually, pulling up his pants. That is a horrific image. When she returned to Spokane the following night, she reported scratching noises at her windows to police, who discovered trampled foliage under the window. The noises occurred twice more before the woman's father drove from Idaho to stay with her, and resumed in the form of pebbles thrown at windows when the woman was once again on her own. That is horrible. It's like he's clearly lingering around, stalking her. Well, all these women, like, he knows when to go into the massage parlor. He knows when she's leaving the radio station and to call her. But again, this is like even escalated further that he's making it known that he's there watching her. Well, and you can imagine that the arrogance would only build because now you're doing really extreme stuff, even with someone and that's no like one's known. Getting out and you're there. not even you're not, not even, even a, a police poster. report. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing on the news. Yeah. Oh God. And and there's actually a lot of stuff in here that I didn't put. Where city officials, prominent people, politicians, whatever, Spokane people encouraged newspapers not to write articles. They, they wanted to make sure that, that Spokane and specifically South Hill stayed as uh, lovely safe. and prestigious. Yeah. And they didn't want property values to go down. Oh, that's terrible. 
I mean, that that's going to run out at some point. You yeah. can't get away with that it, for long. It sure did. And now, I mean, I feel like there's sort of like a, a general consensus about Spokane, right? Yeah. Kind I mean, like, it, yeah, that's true. It has a reputation. And I, I did. I was re-listening to your episode when I was doing the remastering, and I, I there was some statistic about how much more likely you are to be the victim mm-hmm. of a crime in Spokane. It's much higher there. Yeah. I mean, it is a big city, so that's one reason you'll see that spike in big cities. But that place in particular, people be like, you can't live in this area. Don't walk down this road by yourself. So it, it hasn't outgrown that, and that's for sure. no offense, Spokane, but I accidentally ended up, my next big one is going to be in Spokane. You know, well, maybe I'll make one too. <laughs> Didn't mean gonna... to. Sorry, Spokane, <laughs> that that's happening, but... Uh... Yeah, there is something about. I don't know if it's. I always think too because it's kind of an isolated big city. It's and it's off of the highway, and you're so close to Idaho. Yeah, and you're not like you're not on the five. You're not kind of in like a main vein, or like you hop over and it's another big city like five miles away. It is very isolated. It's just out there. It's kind of the only city in the boons. On October twentieth, the South Hill rapist was in court, acting as his own attorney, not for anything to do with the attacks but in a dead-to-rights gotcha shoplifting charge. He was a devotee of Ayn Rand and espoused her idea of situational ethics, that lies were acceptable if they, quote, achieved a beneficial purpose. Ever the master manipulator, the man had badgered and coerced his then-girlfriend, Virginia, to lie under oath for him. She later defined her relationship with the rapist as, quote, mostly he talked about himself and you talked about him, unquote. Two weeks after a man in a gray jogging outfit exposed his penis and masturbated in front of her, a 17-year-old victim saw the same man wearing the same clothing standing outside of Rosauer's store, Spokane's first supermarket. It was the South Hill Rapist, and Rosauer's was the store in which he'd been caught shoplifting. The teen would go on to report these incidents a year and a half later, when the man's picture was all over the newspapers and television media. Monday the 19th of November, A jogger was grabbed getting out of her car, dragged into some brush, and raped by a, quote, white male, 20s, 6 feet tall, gray jogging pants, brown hair, unquote. On November 30th, at a quarter to 6 in the morning, a woman was grabbed by a young, white male wearing gray sweatpants as she walked to her car. The woman was able to lock herself safely inside. The man masturbated at her and ran away. December 6th, a woman jogging in the evening was dragged into a darkened yard by a man wearing jogging clothes. He punched the woman to silence before asking her to urinate on him, then attempting and failing to rape her. The attack lasted 15 minutes, and in that time she was able to memorize the man's face as well as his small hands. On the 7th, a woman was raped by a jogger who said he had a knife. She too took note of his, quote, unusually small hands for a man his height, unquote. And on the 11th, a woman was attacked by a man described as young with, quote, dishwater blonde hair, who would use his fingers to gag the woman, then ejaculated onto her body. The attacks increased in brutality over time, the girls and women further and further savaged, beaten with fists and asphyxiated with the rapist's gloved fingers. Police believe this escalation would eventually lead to murder. Does that mean they finally care? Not yet. Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay, this guy's going to escalate, but we'll wait until then. You silly girl. Quote, One physician, after examining a victim, reported a distinct escalation in violence. The woman had a badly battered face. Her lower lip was cut, and her mouth was a mass of scratches. 
The rapist's glove had cut stitch marks into her tongue. Her throat looked as though someone had taken heavy-gauge sandpaper to it. Unquote. The police, like they tend to do with rape cases, bungled every opportunity to bring the South Hill rapes to a speedy end, failing to connect even the most visible of dots. On January 6, 1980, Dave Reagan of the Spokesman Review wrote that the many attacks, attempts, and rapes were the work of one perpetrator. Police disagreed and explained it away with, quote, What apparently was happening was that each of the reports was being sent to a different area or to different officers because of the various crimes involved and because of the ages of the victims. Because of the number of investigators involved, no trend was clearly evident, unquote. In the same breath, the same police captain interviewed refused to affirm that there was a single South Hill rapist, citing the wide variety in the crimes reported and that all case information had not yet been compiled. The next day, another victim was attacked as she got off a bus. The man punched her in the stomach several times while attempting to pull her into some bushes, but she broke free, flagged down a passerby, and was taken to contact police. Nearing 8 p.m. on February 16th, a woman was assaulted by a man flashing a, quote, very large dildo, unquote. He said he needed sex before forcing her into a dark area between two houses and raping her both orally and vaginally. The same woman was raped a second time by the South Hill rapist later the same year, on July 5th. When she next heard the man's voice eight months after that, she, quote, broke down and cried profusely for a period of time, unquote. March 11th, a 27-year-old was attacked as she walked down the street, the rapist emerging from a staircase. It was the same M.O., hand around the throat, threats of a knife, a flaccid penis. March 16, 1980, Chris Peck, a Spokesman Review columnist, wrote a column about one of the rapist's victims titled, Trying to Forget a Face That Won't Go Away. It reported that six women had been attacked in as many months, and that detectives admitted there had been no arrests in connection with the crimes. Quote, Almost no publicity has been released on the string of South Hill rapes. There were no pictures in the papers, only a few short stories. Unquote. The woman highlighted in the article claimed to have seen the rapist once on the street a couple of weeks before the article was published. On April 16th, a young woman was able to dissuade her attacker from rape with some quick thinking and a concocted story about her having a sexually transmitted infection. Quote, By the end of May, a one-man rape epidemic raged on the South Hill. A special police squad was formed so quietly that newspapers didn't get wind of it till months later. And when they did, police officials repeated their earlier explanation that they hadn't wanted to alarm residents. Given the moniker Special Rape Squad, the task force was formed in May of 1980. Richard Jennings, then a plainclothes policeman assigned to the new squad, described that, quote, the squad was housed at a vacant home on the South Hill. Phones to and from the home were not linked with those of the police department to prevent any intel leaks. On the 13th of May, a few minutes before 8 p.m., a woman was raped as she walked home from a friend's house. On the 23rd, a teenage victim was raped after getting off a bus at 10.30 p.m. In June, Lieutenant Gene McGowan became the investigation's unit chief. Compiling every report on the rapes, the team determined these were the acts of one perpetrator. It was the South Hill rapist's signature of jamming gloved fingers down a victim's throat that gave them this determination. A woman attacked on the afternoon of July 20th stated to police that during the rape, 
The man had patted her on the head with one hand, a detail several other women had also reported. July 26th, a 30-year-old arriving in the wee early hours to the home at which she was house-sitting was attacked as she put her key in the front door. The woman started to scream, and, as always, gloved fingers were forced down the woman's throat. Quote, I remember thinking my jaw was going to break because it hurt so bad. He was pushing my jaw so far open. Unquote. The man choked her out when she refused to submit to him, and her mind came back to her as he was dragging her across the lawn by her throat and jaw. When a siren sounded in the distance, he said, quote, I wonder if that's for you, before running off. Around 12.30 a.m. on August 30, 1980, a 15-year-old girl getting off a bus after a rock concert was raped at around 12.30 a.m. at 16th and Cedar. The man cinched one hand around her neck, the fingers of the other hand shoved into her mouth, down her throat. He made the girl undress, prodding her for her age, the school she attended, her address, before raping her vaginally. She gave up all but the last bit of information, pointing in the opposite direction of her actual home. The man said he would come back with a knife to kill her if she told the police. She described the rapist as, quote, muscular in the shoulders, smooth-voiced, and that he had no discernible odor on his body. A witness to the crime said the man's hair looked blow-dried. At one point, Spokane Police Captain Richard Olberding was asked by a TV news reporter for advice to relate to women attacked by the South Hill rapist. His response, quote, lay back and enjoy it, unquote. A caller to KXLY, the channel that broadcast the interview, wondered if Olberding would lay back and enjoy it if someone stuck a hot poker up his ass. As the number of rapes grew, outlines of fallen women were painted on the street at the location of numerous attacks, which served as both a stark reminder that a monster was among them and that the police had only just begun concerted efforts to capture him. September 7, 1980, Chris Peck wrote another column covering the rapes, which quickly transformed Spokane into a town under siege, spawning an epidemic of fear, hypervigilance, and skyrocketing sales of both firearms and mace. On October 6th, a neighborhood dog barked to the rescue, scaring away the man who had attacked a 21-year-old that had just gotten off a bus. Before he fled, the man had been blocking her windpipe with at least two fingers. At dusk on October 23rd, Julie, 27, was raped after taking a bus from her first day of work at a downtown jewelry store to her new home in her new town of Spokane. Making the rest of the way home on foot, a jogger passed her, heading in the same direction as she. As Julie continued, she ended up walking parallel to an RV parked on the street and noticed the jogger was now squatting behind the vehicle. As she walked past him, she was grabbed from behind. Julie said, quote, He shoved his hand down my throat and was pinning me to the ground with my tonsils, unquote. The rapist told Julie not to look at him and struck her in the head several times throughout the rape. Before running off, the man, quote, told her if anyone asked how she got so dirty to tell them she fell over a rock, unquote. Julie described his appearance as an all-American, well-groomed guy. November 13th, 1980, at 2.45 a.m., a woman coming home on a bus after working the night shift was grabbed by a man wearing leather gloves. He punched her in the face and asked why she was out so late. While pinned to the ground, she was able to get a foot free, rocketing it into his balls. Nice. She then fled to her apartment, but was unable to describe the man's face in detail because her glasses had been knocked off. 
On November 30th, a 16-year-old was raped after riding the bus home that evening. Her mother usually gave her a ride, but she had been out of town. It's interesting how he's almost refining his M.O. You know, instead of out looking for people, it's like, well, now I'm going to wait at the buses because that tends to be easy targets, I guess. Yeah, it seems like he, I, I think he kind of perfected his method. Yeah. You know, before the end, it kind of it kind of spirals out of control, but he really knew what he was doing for yeah. quite a while, yeah. It was nearly 11 p.m. on December 12th, 1980, when an 18-year-old Gonzaga University freshman getting off a bus was dragged into a vacant field by the South Hill rapist, who had popped out from behind a tree. The hand he jammed in her mouth was covered in cloth, most likely an oven mitt unlike the leather or vinyl gloves he sometimes wore. She screamed as some pedestrians walked by, and the man ran off, disappearing into the night. On the 16th, a Spokane Falls college student was able to fend off the rapist with some mace to the face after she bit his forearm, which he'd hooked around her neck. The victim of the rape on December 17th had just stepped off a bus and was standing at a street corner waiting on a friend when a man jogging toward her from behind grabbed and forced her into a wooded area in a weed-choked lot. She told him that she would be missed shortly because she was on the way to a friend's house nearby. He asked when she was set to arrive, and, quote, just then her friend yelled her name, unquote. The ninth grader later gave a description of the man similar to those given by many of the other women he had attacked. By the end of December, 16 rapes and rape attempts had been reported. One of the women attacked at the Tiger's Den massage parlor reported that one night her attacker had chased her home from work, and the next night, when given a ride home by police, he was again at her home, quote, hiding behind a tree and whistling a weird song at her, unquote. Just before 7 a.m. on January 2, 1981, a 31-year-old woman waiting for a bus was approached by a man in jogging clothes who fell into a crouch after pretending to trip. As the man stood, he waved a, quote, large fake penis at her from between his legs, unquote, and asked if she wanted to touch it. Her no came in the form of a tennis racket, which she unsheathed from her duffel bag and swung at her assailant. He turned and ran downhill briefly, before turning back and running toward the young woman with his arms outspread. She took off sprinting and made it home safe, outrunning the rapist. Or perhaps he had backed off, slithering into an alcove or the shade of a tree to wait for an easier quarry. On January 11, 1981, a front-page article titled How the Southside Rapists Work, plural, was published in the Spokesman Review. It followed police assumptions that there were up to three men responsible for the South Hill attacks and featured a map of the connected cases and the shape of the crimes, which traced the paths of five separate public bus routes. At this point, there had been nearly 30 attacks, which consisted of rapes, attempts, and flashings and 16 of those took place along a bus route. Captain Layback and Enjoy It, Richard Olberding, said, regarding the 84% jump in reported sexual assaults, quote, I can tell you now that there are no correlating factors, unquote. When all they had to do is take shifts and go at the times that they said these things happened and go off the different bus routes, 
and they probably would have had him within like a week or two. Yeah, again, I think back to the I-5 killer. They knew he liked to frequent an area, so they went and waited for yeah. him and lured him in. No, there's actually no correlation, actually, so it just is. Shocking. An article written by Rita Hubbard from the same edition of the paper lists a startling statistic. During 1980, there were 74.7 rapes committed per 100,000 residents. The year before, the number was 29.5. Captain Olberding was quoted in that article as well. Quote, I don't have a rape squad as such, not in the same way we have a stolen car team or a check fraud department. Unquote. On January 13th, a married 31-year-old welcomed a realty group into her home so they could tour the property. Unbeknownst to her, the South Hill rapist, who worked as a terrible real estate agent, was among them. There were several scratches on his neck, which he was self-conscious about and tried to conceal by leaning his head to one side. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I know. Like a that high schooler with a hickey. So yep. funny. Oh, what? I always rest I my hand a kink on my, in neck. my neck. You know what I was thinking? You'd think he, with this many rapes that he's done, you'd think he'd start to get worried about being recognized in public. Yeah, but it's like if you don't even have cops listening to the women or anyone on your trail or anything coming back to haunt you. Like, what does he care? What does he care? Of course he's going to show up with scratches and, like, not even wear a turtleneck or a scarf Scarf. or something. (laughs) You know, it's like. There are better solutions than a head Yeah. So it's like, obviously, he's feeling untouchable. And I'm sure the idea of being recognized probably was exciting to him. Yeah. To be like, I could be at the grocery store and just elicit terror. Or see someone I've raped there. Uh Uh-huh. I can hear my voice. Yeah. The first of two rapes in February of 1981 was committed on the 5th. One was a, quote, 51-year-old woman jogging at Hart Field near Sacagawea Junior High School, unquote. During the rape, the man, said to have a sharp jawline and deep-set eyes, told the woman, quote, you don't know how much I needed this, unquote. The second rape that month took place near a bus route on the morning of February 9th, after a 20-year-old woman had dropped her baby son off with her parents, who lived on the South Hill. The rapist wore oven mitts during the attack, covering the woman's eyes and mouth, forcing his thickly padded fingers into her mouth when she attempted to scream. The South Hill rapist asked her during the rape, quote, How come you don't take the same bus all the time? Unquote. At the time of the rape at the junior high, a school groundskeeper reported a silver Chevy Citation parked in a school bus zone. The next morning, the groundskeeper was questioned about the car by a detective, and he said it was definitely a Citation because he remembered the raised lettering near the front left wheel well and that the vehicle was parked for a quick exit. Police ran the car's license, and the compact sedan came back registered to a man named Gordon Coe. Mr. Gordon Coe was editor of the Spokane Daily Chronicle newspaper, and had been for 25 years. He was quiet and reserved, with one co-worker saying he talked about his family for only a few minutes over the course of his tenure at the paper. A friend described Gordon Coe as, quote, a television 1950s prototype, a staid, conservative man, with not a lot to say, unquote. Though he had said quite a bit in an editorial he printed in the Spokane Daily Chronicle back in January of 1981, In the article, he voiced concern for the everyman out jogging merely for his health, being harassed because the rapist was described as wearing jogging clothes. 
he further complained about the taxpayer cost involved with a dedicated sex crime squad, comparing it to city sewer service and garbage collection. Police also found that he was the single person at the paper in charge of receiving tips on the South Hill attacks and rapes. Checking Gordon's vitals, they found he was 57 years old and fit neither victim nor witness descriptions of the South Hill rapist, but he did have a son. Frederick Harlan Coe, 34, was born on February 2, 1947. He was clean-cut and upper-middle-class, just like the South Hill itself. He prized his appearance. His hair was always perfectly coiffed, his face poreless and smooth like Patrick Bateman's in American Psycho. The one-time Las Vegas radio announcer was first married in 1972, divorced in 1976, and in Spokane was employed as a terrible real estate agent. And though his plans were grand to become a real estate developer, he made only a few sales, one of which was to his parents. Another of his big plans was to open a disco in Spokane. Sorry, that's that feels like a, an oxymoron. This was only a year and change before the Disco Sucks era, when those cocaine-dusted nights of boogaloo boppers and hustlers in hot pants began to wane, so the club never came to be. Known as eccentric, but always hating to be called so, Fred Coe, quote, said he practiced a type of psycho-cybernetics and mental discipline called laser life, and also seemed to be fixated on his diet and fitness, binging and extreme fasting in equal measure. You know, I dare say we might have our suspect. Fred was obsessed with, quote, bringing big city atmosphere to Spokane by sending helpful letters under a pen name to newspapers and city officials, typing them on Spokane Metro Growth Letterhead, an organization that did not exist. He had been expelled from high school, which he denied, and he later dropped out of Gonzaga University after attending for only a year. When he lived in Los Angeles for a time, he worked in the, quote, theater business, tearing tickets and buttering hot popping corn at a movie theater. Fred was also an author who tried in vain for years to get his vulgar-doesn't-even-come-close satire, Sex in the White House, published. A comedy that isn't funny, featuring sex that isn't sexy. As a teenager, Fred garnered an interest in writing poetry, calling his coetry, oh. a practice that ceased after a schoolmate mocked him for it. Coe had many relationships in his life, but none of them particularly close. He had a nickname, sometimes multiple, for the people in his life. His high school friend John was Humpy or Hump Turd, Jay Williams, Pastor, upcoming Dildo Heist Master, and best friend to Fred was called Jay Hamid by Coe. His father was Gordo, and his mother Ruth was Bearfax, or Mother Bear, which I just hate. Police dug into Fred Coe's background and came back with a few troubling incidents. In May of 1971, Fred Coe was arrested and charged with second-degree burglary. This resulted after Coe entered an unlocked apartment and slipped into bed beside a sleeping woman he did not know. She screamed, and he fled, before being chased down by two male witnesses. The charges, however, were dismissed the next year, when the victim moved out of state and failed to respond to multiple subpoenas. In March of 1977, Coe, living back in Spokane, was busted on disorderly conduct for looking over a stall in the woman's restroom at a Vips restaurant and verbally assaulting its occupant. 
After fleeing from the restaurant in his father's Oldsmobile, police traced the car to the co-residence. Fred denied using the vehicle that night, but when an officer put his hand to the hood, it was still warm. Near the end of December 1977, Fred, lurking under a streetlight, exposed his penis to a woman waiting for a bus, then ran when she called out to him. The first South Hill rape took place only four months later. So many missed opportunities. Tons, hundreds, it feels like. Like, if you had been scared enough with that first lady, you know, getting chased out of her house, and you understand her leaving, it just sucks that a case would be dependent on the the, the victim. Yeah, you know, it really might have dissuaded him, too, because he, it was one thing I, I learned reading uh, the book that I read for this case. Um, he did not like being in trouble or being called out or caught for things. Oh. And so he defended himself, like, uh, well, vehemently about everything. That would explain yeah. uh, kind of like the conversations he was having with people and sticking around and just being like, I'm yeah. sorry, and what are you going to do for your radio job? Like, yeah. just trying to, like, this is all Take fine. No one's upset. It. Yeah, to I'm have not it both in trouble. Ways. Yeah. Returning to 1981, a representative for the Special Rape Squad spoke regarding the break in the case. Quote, we had to be very careful about that because Fred Coe's father worked at the Chronicle, so we knew the potential was there for a leak, unquote. On February 25, 1981, the 51-year-old woman who had been raped while jogging at Hart Field was brought in to speak with police and confirm Coe as the man who had attacked her. When shown a photo lineup including one of Fred Coe, she exclaimed, quote, That's him. That's definitely him, unquote. The squad's surveillance of Fred Coe began the same day, starting in the pre-dawn hours each morning. Multiple undercover vehicles kept Ko within their sights, always shifting the lead vehicle if they got too close to Ko or past him, with replacements rolling into the fold as seamlessly as possible, dropping in behind Ko's vehicle from cross streets. Quote, Detective Rich Jennings, who joined the Spokane Police Department during Expo 74, remembered hiding in trees, looking for tails on decoys the department was using in an attempt to lure out the perpetrator, They'd also tagged a Chevrolet Citation belonging to the Coe family with a tracker. The surveillance was not around the clock, and usually only covered the hours from sundown to sunrise. Small teams deployed female officers as decoys, and they observed Fred acting suspiciously, constantly. He would drive through parks watching joggers, speed over to Ferris High School to watch young girls leave for the day, and always, always, he was observed following bus routes and watching those who disembarked. And the car is called a Citation? Yeah. What a terrible name. I, I, it was not a good time for American cars. <laughs> Quote, During the time of surveillance, Coe was never observed to actually jog. Unquote. Though his girlfriend Virginia reported that Fred spent two to four hours jogging daily. On March 1st, a 17-year-old jogger witnessed a man laying on a bench masturbating. She ran home and reported the incident to police. This took place after police surveillance had been called off for the day. A similar incident took place the previous morning, again, after surveillance had been stopped for the day. Why even bother doing it if you're doing it, like, work hours? That's so ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I think that, well, that's, like, the, the, the MO, the, the, the time frame when the South Hill rapist would attack was those hours. But I know. I guess so. But if you're, like, feeling so certain and you have people saying, that's the guy, is it really that hard to have people on him 24-7? Yes. Oh, okay. On March 7th, 
the team observed Fred driving his father's silver citation dangerously fast across town to follow different bus routes, some along High Drive, a street on the hill where at least six other women had been attacked. Lieutenant Gene McGowan, the case's unit chief, described Coe's driving like, quote, a shark looking for his meal, unquote. March 8th, a track scholarship student running on a wood chip trail fled when the rapist exposed a large dildo to her, which was, quote, over a foot long and as thick as a fist, unquote. But her anger rose, and she turned around, giving chase to the man, stopping a vehicle and informing its occupants, who responded with, quote, we'll take care of him, before peeling out, <laughs> before peeling out and chasing Fred, who was now in his vehicle, to a dead-end street. Get him! Leading up to her attack on the trail, the student had received more than a dozen obscene phone calls to her family home. The assault was noted by police, but they held back on an arrest. So he had already been, like, stalking her through the phone and then found her when she was doing her track time. And here they have a perfect opportunity to teach him a lesson, get him arrested for something, and they don't. They wanted him for a a rape, at least, yeah, so... Um, yeah, they just wanted it to be cut it's and dry. It's just so hard because you know he's going to. Right. It's like, what a risk. And like, they they almost have to be there after the fact. Yeah, it's and like it's not like you can trust them. Yeah, it's That's... not like you can trust them to be following him and monitoring him. There's always, there's already been several things that happened after they weren't watching. That's my biggest problem with these types of crimes is we know what the behavior is and where it goes. We know. And I know we can't, you know, arrest people for things they didn't do but they have a good idea he did do some of these things it's very frustrating yeah especially when you have eyewitnesses why does it have to be more when you have 18 rapes and attacks two days later on march 10th 1981 fred co was arrested at his real estate office for the Hartfield rape the one in which a 51 year old had been the victim that night many of those attacked by the south hill rapist were brought to police headquarters to ID Co. Several of them picked Co as the man in the jogging clothes they had each encountered during those horrible attacks. Recalling the identification of Fred Co, Julie Harmia, the woman raped on October 23, 1980, while walking home from work her first week in Spokane, said, quote, When you get to the police station, you can't look at each other in the eyes because you're all feeling so many emotions. It's when the magnitude of this reign of terror really comes home to you. You look around and see all these women. Oh my God. Unquote. March 10th, coincidentally enough, was also the day the South Hill rapist's reign of terror ended. He vanished, never to attack again. And that brings us to the end of part one. Next week, we'll talk about the trials of Fred Coe, a hitman hired for vengeance, and a victim of rape who stood up many more times than she was knocked down in a decades-long struggle to ensure the South Hill rapist remains confined until the day he dies. At least they were um, diligent enough to call all the victims in that they could. Yeah, it sounds... Since they had already said, it's not a well, connected thing. It's like, like, now we have a use for you. Yeah. Come on in. I think, you know, they waited too long, but I think they did make up for it by making sure they had everything they needed Yeah, when they finally yeah. made a move. Because it is hard to to get people on a lot of crimes. 
mm-hmm. rapists in particular, especially back then. I mean, what could we do? Blood typing? Yeah. Or know if there was blood in their semen yeah. versus those that not don't a, have not it? Not a whole lot. That was the limit that they had. Yeah. yeah. They, they, and he was. He was a secretor. Yeah. Which means blood cells show up in his bodily fluids. Right. And oh, I think what okay. we talked about that was that in we my I five so. episode. I yeah, think, I think so. so. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah, they had come out with being able to do DNA a few years after mm-hmm. that. But yeah, it's just ooh. yeah, what a monster and just so empowered. The power and the ego and the getting away with it just to to do more and more. It's actually quite shocking he didn't murder anyone that we know of so far. Yeah, I, I was expecting it. Any yeah. any rape. Any of those rapes you described, I was waiting for it. Yeah, because it's like you know where the people live. You know their phone number. You're following them for who knows how long. And then, you know, to be willing to put your hand where teeth are. Like the human jaw is the strongest muscle we have. And to be like, I'm going to think he was banking on the fact that, that, that ultimate control. They don't know how they're going to react being attacked like yeah. that. It's that surprise advantage. Oh, yeah. And I think they're, the jaw would be open so wide it couldn't bite. Yeah. Yeah, but you, I mean, that would just be... Uh, I realize it's amazing he didn't even accidentally kill someone. Doing I know that. who else does that. Keith Jesperson, oh, the happy face killer. Oh, okay. He too did that when he raped women. Oof, that that would be horrifying. You, I can't even imagine. You would just be so terrified of like trying to stop that. You're from happening focused on breathing and then trying to breathe. Yeah. And who knows, like, if you're choking on your own because saliva, your, and... your desire to live kicks yes. in at that point, yes. and you're doing whatever you can to breathe. Ugh. And also, he's just talking to them pretty casually. Yeah. Aside from the, aside from the violent acts and the threats, when he I talked to them, it was imagine. very casual and sweet, even. Yeah, the like how nightmares you, said... you would have after that of just how anybody could be yes. a rapist. Yeah, it's not the big scary boogeyman. Yeah, it's some dude who's trying to make small talk and, like, and touching them. them, touching them in in an intimate way, and then patting them on the head yeah. like thanks for yeah, your yeah, good job. thanks for your service. Yeah, he did that. He would pat them on their on their butts before they would go and just yeah, yeah. and like and he would dress them too. He would do all sorts of process stuff like that. As sort, of, I get it would be probably sort of like an amends, like hey, I'm sorry, I got out of control. Yeah, here. I Ugh. had to do that. I needed that. Yeah, thanks that for supplying me that. out. I needed that. That Ugh. was terrible. Yeah, and just, I can't even fathom what that would be like. Like, uh, I think the DJ was who you had mentioned really some of the, more Uh, more of the conversation with her, with Sunshine. And just like, how, between the screaming and fighting and whatever is going on, to be like, how are you liking work? And then to the whole bullshit of, I'm scared of authority and I don't want to be in trouble, so I'll say sorry. and stop doing stuff that's going to get you in trouble. Yeah, sorry, that doesn't work. You don't get to say that when you're going out of your way to do horrific criminal things that is a a long list of rapes i am i mean what a prolific rapist and and that was that was some of them there was there (sighs) were there were many many more that were unreported or they kind of couldn't prove that it was him like it didn't quite match his signature so there was a bunch that got left out but i read this uh, psychological evalu- evaluation they did of him and it had like just about every incident and it was 105 pages oh my goodness yeah so it was it was a staggering what would I mean you... it was like a plague it was unbelievable do you have like a ballpark number of what you think his total uh, assaults and rapes were 80 I think kind of like confirmed I think it's like 80 within what kind of time frame uh, I think that's from 78 to 81 yeah and and, it, and you know <clears throat> the other thing too is and i'll talk about where you know he lived in las vegas and in los angeles for a while and there is something that happened in las vegas but there's no other 
and I didn't have I didn't have time to do the research to see if there were other rapes that were happening mm. in the other places he was living. But or if would, they just weren't connected whatsoever. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just wouldn't be surprised because he was he was active at uh, sexual violence and abuse there too. Well, and, and he was younger when he went into the woman's bed, and that was kind of like yeah. his first incident. So, yeah, that was seventy one, I think it said. Yeah, and so he would have been so well, the 10 idea, years younger. He was a twenty four. The idea that that would start and he would kind of start dipping his toe, and then it would just end for seven years, yeah. and then he would just no. show up and be it's like violent. Yeah, no, it, he was, was doing stuff, stuff there along was stuff the happening. way. That is a common occurrence. That reminds me of one of your favorite people to study. And I can't pronounce his name, but that Japanese killer. Oh, uh-huh. his first incident of sexual violence was climbing into bed with a neighbor. Mm-hmm. That is a common. And I wonder is what that the cannibal. The yeah. cannibal. Yeah. He he got into her bed and tried to bite her butt. Like I want, yeah. What is that? That it's like that comfort, that like childish childhood, child comfort. childish, but also creepy stalkery. Yeah, sneaking in and like just that. like incredibly intimate. So it's not a rape, but it is a rape of privacy and like coming into where I am sleeping, that is like something you only share it's with a your violation. partner. It's a violation. Yeah. So definitely that's like a test drive of how far can I get and how mm. close can I get to people. Well, I am interested in next week's episode to hear how he got nailed and uh, a hitman. All that jazz. Oh yeah. I, I am it's gonna be great. You won't believe Mother Bear when you meet her. Oh my God, you never said what you had to do with your sister. Remember when you're like, we have wedding stuff. Oh, <laughs> it ended up just being lunch and she gave us presents and she apparently sings. So I thought, oh, it'd be good to get to know her. They're going to put karaoke at the wedding for the two of Fun. us. So I'm like, put those two in the corner. <laughs> or celebrate keeping the couch warm. Or celebrate keeping the couch warm. <laughs> <laughs> the first one was good. Or celebrate keeping the couch. Oh my God. Or celebrate keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat. God in heaven. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's no. from a long time ago. From a long time ago. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You've got Sorry, to guys. I'm not on board. You've got to see them this on video. Elon, if you can go to my uh, Elon drive. Tusk. Go to, go to the drive. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that was good. That was a good one. Elon Tusk. <laughs> the funniest joke you've ever told. <laughs> He's going to send that picture. He I will, will die. I will, I, will re- I will respond. No. <laughs> no, thank you. Oh, our traditional morning greeting. That's right. Flap, flap. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't know about that for anybody listening for god's sake he is risen (laughs) (laughs) i've got some hidden eggs for you to find in your ovaries no they're yeah and they're in my ovaries i don't want them (laughs) that's so gross for some reason (laughs) it is gross there's edible eggs in your body Ah, (laughs) cook those babies up. up yep
No ecstasy, but I got placenta. We call it a baby bump around here. Ah, that's funny. <laughs> I like that kind of humor. <laughs> I never seen you wear it. Will you wear it next week? I sure will. <laughs> and I'll take then I'll show you my Nikita Khrushchev shirt. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> Sorry. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>